Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls, Dolls and Doom. Doom. Okay, Paula, a couple things. If I sound a little funny, I'm getting over a little head cold. Excuse my voice. I'm bringing you a really important case today. We actually covered this case very early on, but that was the one show that I volunteered to edit, and I had no idea what I was doing. We are re-recording it now with new information. We've improved a lot, and Paula is doing our editing. So today, I'm going to tell you the story of Asha Degree. Now, I'm going to start off by saying I have heard her name pronounced both Asha and Asha, but my favorite true crime host, Stephanie Harlow, she's the person who got me into true crime. She has a great YouTube channel. She pronounces this Asha, and she like deep dives on her research. So if she pronounces it Asha, I'm pretty sure that's probably correct. So I'm going to call her Asha. I like it. It sounds pretty. Yeah, it's very pretty. Okay, so Asha was born on August 5th, 1990. Her parents were Harold and Aquila Degree, and Asha had an older brother named O'Brien. They were so close, O'Brien and Asha. They were actually less than a year apart. So so cute. I I can just see them playing together. Yeah, they were like best friends, super close, walked to the bus together, slept in the same room. They were almost like twins, you know, best friends. So Asha was described as being a really shy, quiet, sweet child. She was a really good student. If you look at a picture of her, man, she's so cute. She was precious. And you can almost like see from looking at her photo, like how sweet she was. Yeah. She was adorable. All of her teachers and coaches and people in her life described her as being very well behaved She was definitely a rule follower. She was the point guard for her peewee basketball team, and she was actually considered like one of the top players on the team. Oh, good for her. I know. Go, girl. She loved going to church. She loved spending time with her family. She loved to sing, but she was so shy that even though she really wanted to sing a church solo, she was was too shy to even like audition for it oh that is so cute (laughs) which i get because auditioning is terrible yes it is (laughs) she was described like i said as a rule follower and maybe even a little timid she disliked dogs for example it wasn't that she didn't like the dogs she just didn't like when they jumped up on her as dogs often do when they get excited so understandable she just didn't like that rough behavior especially when you're little and the dog's bigger than you it can be frightening oh yeah i love animals and I don't like dogs jumping up on me. Yeah. Bigger dogs kind of make me nervous. Yeah, for sure. Her mom would say that if she watched a movie and there was a sad scene, it would make her really, really sad. She would cry. So she had big emotions. Yes, very big emotions. The Thriller music video by Michael Jackson, like, gave her nightmares. She was so scared of, like, the zombies and stuff. So she was just a sweet, sensitive child. Yes. Now, Asha and her family lived on the same street as Asha's grandmother, and I believe this is Harold's mother. And then along with the grandmother, Harold's sister, Asha's aunt, also lived there in the house with their kids. And this was on a street 
called Oak Crest Street in Shelby, North Carolina. And Shelby is a really rural area in North Carolina. Asha was in fourth grade. She attended Falston Elementary School. And by all accounts, Asha and the Degree family really had a happy home life. Aquila and Harold were very protective parents. I would probably describe them as strict, but like not in a bad way. They just wanted to protect their kids. For instance, they didn't want their kids talking to strangers online. Yep. So they didn't have a computer. They weren't really into letting them watch TV and things like that. Harold was a dock loader at PPG Industries, located in Shelby, and he worked the second shift. So typically, second shifters work from around 4 or 5 in the afternoon till about midnight or 1 a.m. the next day. Now, Aquila worked in Lincolntown building pianos. How cool is that? That's really cool. I know. Well, I'd love more information on that, like what exactly goes into building a piano. Which yeah, I'd love did. to take a tour and see yeah. the factory. Harold and Aquila, they worked all day. So when the kids got home from school, they would just let themselves in the house. Both kids had their own set of house keys. And on the days where they didn't go straight home, they might find themselves, you know, at their grandmother's and aunt's house, since again, it was on that same street. But most days they'd come home from school and just, you know, spend a few hours there by themselves before their mom got home. All right, so our story begins on Friday, February 11th, 2000. When O'Brien and Asha have the day off from school, and they spend the day with Harold's sister, who again lives right there on that street. They'd had basketball practice that afternoon, so their aunt took them to the practice, and later Asha's coach, Chad Wilson, would say that Asha acted totally normal and practice was completely uneventful. The next day, the entire family went to the first basketball game of the season, which was held at Burns Middle School. And this was a big deal, as you could probably imagine. It was the first game. The kids were super excited. But sadly, Asha's team lost by one point. Oh, that's so frustrating. I know. And what really made it worse was during the game, Asha fouled out. So she actually blamed herself for the team losing. Oh. All of the girls on the team were obviously upset. Some of them were crying. Asha was one of them who was crying. It seemed like she may have been a little embarrassed over the fact that she was so upset because at one point someone asked her why she was crying. And instead of saying she was upset about the game, she said it was because she'd hurt her leg. But then later when she was asked about it further, she admitted her leg was never hurt and she was just upset about the game. So yeah. For whatever reason, she didn't want to tell people what she was really feeling, which I think is totally normal. Oh, yeah, I do that. Yeah, <laughs> me too. When it's something that like really bothers you, sometimes talking about it just makes it worse. Right. Even though the kids were really upset, they're kids, they're resilient. So before they even left the gym while O'Brien was playing on his team, all the girls were covered and they were all fine and they were able to cheer on O'Brien's team. So then that night after the game, Asha had a sleepover at her cousin's house. Now, when I think of a sleepover, I think of like the couple times my oldest son had friends sleepover, which was like maximum four or five kids. You know, when you're in charge of four or five other kids, Ugh. that's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> and maybe it's because mine were boys. I don't know. I remember one time 
In the middle of the night, after they'd had quite enough junk food, I put some stuff on top of the fridge. And one of these boys literally climbed on top of the fridge in the middle of the night to get to the junk food. Of course. (laughs) And he is still friends with my son. And sometimes he drives my son places and I'm always just like, is that the kid that... Is that the fridge climber? (laughs) (laughs) Does he drive? Like he sneaks treats? (laughs) So four or five kids is a lot. Guess how many were at the sleepover? Oh, geez. Nine? Some reports say up to a dozen. Oh, no. Yes. No. Where are you going to put all those kids? A dozen. I don't know. I Well, I guess just sleeping on the floor, just I wherever guess. they land. But a dozen cousins and friends sleeping over. That's a lot. Yeah. When you're one of those kids, it's super fun. Oh, yeah. But if you're the adult watching over them, oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh. You are getting so zero sleep. Zero sleep. So the next morning, somehow, they were able to get up. And Asha's aunt and grandmother took the whole gang to church. Now, I don't know if this means, like, all the kids, but the family all went to church at Macedonia Baptist Church, where they all attended regularly. And this was the normal routine. Again, Asha seemed totally normal. She was her normal self. After church, everybody went back to the aunt's house to have Sunday lunch together. And because the next day was Valentine's Day... Asha's grandmother gave her a bag of her favorite Valentine's candy. After they all hung out for a bit with the extended family, Aquila and Harold decide to go home and take their kids because Harold has to get ready for his shift. So here's where things start to get a little fuzzy. There are conflicting reports on like little details throughout the story. So I'm just going to tell you all of them and then we can kind of just go from there. There's three different versions as to what happened immediately. The first is Harold went to work and then got home around 11.30 p.m., found both children asleep in the bedroom. The second version is Harold did not go to work, but instead went out for Valentine's candy, and he didn't get home until about 12.30 a.m. and found both children asleep. Third version is Asha fell asleep on the sofa around 6.30 and was later woken up by a storm, and spent the rest of the night watching TV with her mother and brother until the power was knocked out and the kids went to bed. What we do know for sure is that there was a storm. We know there was a storm, and we know that the Degree family lost power. Those two things have definitely been confirmed. In fact, Aquila normally gave the kids their baths before bed every evening, but on this particular night, due to there being no power, she sent them to bed a little early because she planned on getting them up a little earlier in the morning to take their baths. Now, in all of the different accounts, it's consistently stated that Harold checked on the kids around 12.30 a.m., and then again right before he went to bed around 2.30 a.m., and both times the kids were asleep in the room they shared. As for all of the other inconsistencies, I don't think they mean much. I honestly think it's more like a game of telephone, It's mainly just little differences in the timeline, things like that. And my personal opinion as to where those came from is that Harold was the one who did the talking to the media, but he wasn't the one who was actually home that night. He was either at work or buying candy. So we're already going through middleman for information. Right. It's nothing that's really going to change the story. Right. I don't think it points to foul play or they can't get their story straight. I think it's just... Okay, so sometime after Harold checked on the kids around 2.30 a.m., O'Brien said that he woke up to the sound of his sister's bed squeaking. We have a couple of different accounts here. 
Some places say that he saw her get up and go to the bathroom and then come back and get in bed. And some accounts say that he just heard her. He assumed that she was getting up, going to the bathroom, and then came back. He heard more squeaking and thought it was just her tossing and turning, but he never looked up to see what was actually going on. The most reported version is that O'Brien woke up to the sounds of Asha moving around, but that he did not actually lay eyes on her. We'll find out this is important because Asha ends up going missing. It would be important to know if he actually saw her of course. or if he only heard her. Unfortunately, we're not 100% positive which one is fact. What we do know is the next morning, which was Valentine's Day and also Harold and Aquila's wedding anniversary, Aquila got up around 5.40 a.m. or 6 a.m. to go get the bath ready for the kids. She would normally wake them up around 6.30 but because they skipped their baths the night before, she gave them a few extra minutes to get ready. When she went into the kids' room to wake the kids up for school, Asha was not in her bed. So obviously, she goes around her house checking for her, can't find her. She calls her sister-in-law across the street. Did she somehow end up there? No, they had not seen her. So Aquila called the police at 6.39 a.m. The police arrived by 6.41 a.m. So That's they were amazing. Fast. Right. Absolutely. Search dogs were brought in, but they were unable to find any kind of a scent trail. Now, this is possibly due to rain, because remember, there was that storm. Oh, that's right. I heard somewhere that sometimes rain can actually help lock in smells. Okay. I don't know which one's true, but I thought that was worth mentioning. Nobody slept on this search they moved quick. They moved fast. Like I said, police were there within three minutes. They brought in a helicopter and more than 60 volunteers showed up immediately to help find this nine-year-old little girl. It's they didn't great. play. Yeah, it's amazing. If we did this every time, we'd probably have a lot more success stories. Absolutely. Everywhere they looked, there was nothing, including the house. So a big question was, how did she leave the house? The house was completely locked up. There was no evidence of forced entry. It looked like Asha just left on her own. Her parents and the police did a quick search of her room. And her parents were able to tell police that Asha's black book bag and a Tweety Bird purse were missing. They also noticed a few changes of clothing missing from her room, almost as if she had packed a bag. Now this Tweety Bird purse was special as Asha had just won it in class the week before. Her teacher would give the students tokens for good behavior, and Asha had saved enough tokens to buy this purse, so it was something that she was really proud of. The fact that the doors were locked didn't necessarily mean too much to anyone, because remember, Asha did have a copy of her house key. She kept it in her book bag, so she could have left the house and locked the doors behind her. And honestly, she seems like such a responsible child. It seems like if she had left the house in the middle of the night, she probably would have thought to lock the doors. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. can see that. It's believed that Asha was wearing white jeans, white sneakers, and her white nightshirt. However, her parents did not think that she would have brought a winter coat with her. I guess her coat was still there in the house. This was February in North Carolina where the average temps are highs of 56 and lows of 31. 
So that's really cold. Really cold. The first thing that the police were trying to figure out is, did someone take Asha or did she just leave on her own? And if so, why? Based on the items that were missing, it really looked like she just packed a bag and left her on her own. And police noted that the items that they believed she had taken with her were the kinds of things a child would pack, not necessarily what an adult might take with them on a trip. So upon first glance, evidence is pointing to Asha leaving on her own, but this was so out of character for her. Now once news that a little girl went missing was made public, reports started coming in really, really quickly. And there were at least two separate reports of truck drivers seeing a little girl matching Asha's description, walking along the side of the highway about a mile away from her house between 3.30 a.m. and 4.15 a.m. on February 14th. One of these drivers was so concerned at the sight of the child walking along the highway in the middle of the night that he turned around. When she saw a truck approaching her, she disappeared into the woods along the highway, which to me kind of makes sense. If I'm walking on the road in the middle of the night and I see a like truck turn around and like come back to me, I'm going to hide too. Yes. As an adult, I would do that. (laughs) That guy's going to come get me. Right. So these woods that she disappeared into and the surrounding areas were searched immediately because this highway was along a wooded area. And police were able to find some things. They found some candy wrappers and they matched the candy that her grandmother had given her. Okay. They also found a pencil a marker, and a Mickey Mouse hair bow that Asha's parents did identify as Asha's. And these things were actually found on the ground in the doorway of a tool shed at an upholstery store that was located on Highway 18. And that was the highway she was seen walking on. It was more than a mile away from Asha's home, and in order to access it, she would have had to climb up a hill and across a gilly to get to this shed. So it wasn't just a hop skipping a jump. It would have required a little bit of effort on her part to find herself in the shed. But it appears that she possibly could have been in there because, you know, some of her belongings were. Now, some people think that she may have gone to the shed for cover from the storm because remember, it was storming. And And she didn't have a jacket. Right. February in North Carolina, pretty cold. Other people think maybe she went there to hide from that truck. Other theories suggest that she may have even been waiting to meet someone there. Now, something else was found on a later search of this shed, and this to me is so puzzling, and then the lack of information surrounding it is even more weird, but there was a photograph of another little girl who looked very similar to Asha that was found in this shed. It kind of looked like one of those school photo type photos. Okay. But there's also like a whole bunch of theories that if you look at it, it almost looks like it's been photoshopped or something. Part of it's really crisp and part of it's really fuzzy. It looks like it's been doctored. Okay. Which only adds to the mystery, of course, of this photo. But the strange thing was that this photo was originally shared with the public. And authorities asked if anyone recognized the girl in this photo. But then after putting it out and connecting it to this case... Nothing was ever mentioned of again. So we don't know if they got answers as to what this photo may have been, if they decided it wasn't related, if it was, if they found who was in the photo. We don't know anything about it. But just originally, they kind of linked this photo to this case and said, does anybody know this girl? And then they dropped it. And we don't hear any more about this photo. 
So authorities do announce that they believe Asha was a victim of foul play, and they have three theories of what may have happened to her. The first was an abduction. The second was a hit and run. The third was that Asha was hurt or lost and then became a victim of foul play. The parents were not, never have been, considered suspects or persons of interest. Like, the parents have been completely cleared. Here's what's weird to me about that. We don't know anything about this case. This case is more than 20 years old. We have no answers, but they were able to clear the parents. But there's, like, no other leads. And that's just what's so weird to me is just that we have no clue, but we're able to clear the parents. And I'm not saying the parents were guilty of anything. I think if we cleared them, there's good reason to. But we don't have anything else. It's just so strange to me. So by February 18th, four days after she went missing, more than 500 searchers were looking for Asha, but nothing new was found. And then by the 20th of February, the search was called off because searchers announced that there was no way Asha would have been able to survive in the wilderness, in the woods, alone due to those tips. Going back to Asha leaving the house on her own accord, why would she have run away? That really made no sense, but all evidence pointed to her leaving on her own. Investigators believe that she left the house on her own, which just is baffling. Why would she have done this? One of the things that investigators learned was that Asha's class at school had been reading a book called The Whipping Boy, and it tells the story of two children who run away and share adventures, and then they return safely home at the end of the book. So investigators wondered, could this have been her inspiration to run away? Keep in mind, this was very unusual behavior for her. Here's the thing. I think we know people. We know their personalities. If I don't come home one night, there's something wrong. 100% something wrong. (laughs) I'm never going to just not come home. And if I do, something is wrong. So I think her parents would have known her. You know what I mean? And just the fact that she just left when that's so not her personality, it just went against who she was. She didn't like dogs because she didn't like them jumping up on her. She didn't watch the thriller music video because it was scary. But she's going to leave her house and walk a mile along the woods in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm. Yeah, that doesn't sound like her personality. That would scare me. Yeah. Now as an adult. So several months after she disappeared, an inmate at the local jail named Baron Ramsey, who was a former high school classmate of Aquila, claimed that he and another man were riding back to Shelby the night Asha disappeared. He said they hit her with their car as she was trying to cross the road. He said they put her in the back of the truck and dumped her body in Moss Lake. So obviously Moss Lake was dragged twice, but nothing was found. There was also no evidence of a hit and run due to no blood, no skid marks, or any other evidence that supported this confession. So ultimately this confession was dismissed and authorities chalked it up to Ramsey wanting to get a plea deal for his pending federal charges for a bank robbery. Authorities absolutely do not believe his story to be true. 18 months goes by. And finally, we get what might be a big break. So on August 3rd, 2001, only two days before what would have been her 10th birthday, construction workers who were digging an access road for a new housing development more than 26 miles from Asha's home, found a buried black 
trash bag. Inside this trash bag was another trash bag. Inside that was Asha's book bag. Her book bag was double bagged and buried. In some accounts, it's suggested that Asha's name and phone number had been printed on the book bag but were scratched out, and other reports just say that her name and number were somewhere on the backpack. Now, this backpack was found in the opposite direction from Asha's house from where she had been allegedly seen walking. There were some animal bones and a pair of men's khakis nearby. We don't know if those pants were ever linked to this discovery or not. Nothing else of any importance was found. So a couple more years go by. And in September of 2003, a man named Danny Ray Johnson was arrested for the rape of a girl who was very close in age to Asha and just happened to live very near where the backpack was found buried. He was questioned, but he denied any involvement with Asha's disappearance. And he provided DNA samples, but it was later determined that he was incarcerated at the time of Asha's disappearance. In January of 2014, a man named Donald Ferguson was arrested for the murder of a girl named Shalonda Poole. Now, Shalonda Poole was a seven-year-old precious little doll who was reported missing on July 21st, 1990. She went missing early in the morning between 6 and 8 a.m. and was last seen by her twin sister. Her family knew Ferguson, and they'd actually had him over to their home and he had participated in searching for her in the days after she went missing. She was found dead the next morning. She had been raped, stabbed, and strangled. She was seven years old. Oh my god. That hurts my heart. I can't even like go into the details of that case. There's a lot more to that, and it, it was just too much. Yeah, I for me. don't want to hear it. I don't even really believe in the death penalty, but cases like this... Fry him. <laughs> yeah. Fry him. Slowly and painfully. Yes. Due to the similarities between Asha and Shalanda, both in age and appearance, many people believe, and some still believe, that Ferguson could have been responsible for Asha, but we have no proof that he was involved or not involved. We really have nothing either way other than just the similarities. In 2015, the FBI did a reinvestigation. They received a tip that someone may have seen Asha getting into a green 1970s model Ford Thunderbird or Lincoln Mark IV with rust around the wheel wells. The FBI released this information in 2016, and that's all we have on that. Just this one totally obscure tip. These cars would obviously have stuck out in 2000. They're large cars. You would have noticed. Yeah, you would have noticed. Why they waited 15, 16 years to tell us about them, I don't know. In 2018, the FBI released two new pieces of evidence. It's a New Kids on the Block concert t-shirt and a children's book called McElliot's Pool by Dr. Seuss. Neither of these items belonged to Asha, but they were found in her backpack. So New Kids on the Block wasn't super popular in the year 2000, and especially not for someone her age. They were popular in the late 80s and the early 90s. So doesn't it seem like maybe somebody older may have had that shirt? Yes, definitely. And then the book was from Asha's school library, but they didn't have a record of who may have checked it out last, which seems typical for a school library. I also think, you know, her parents didn't recognize these items, especially the book, because the book we know did come from her school. 
to me, that doesn't mean it couldn't have been hers. You know how kids like trade things. Oh, yeah. I did it. Right. Me too. So they didn't recognize it as something she had. But the fact that it came from her school, to me, it seems like it's a possibility it was hers. So here's some of the theories. The first is that she may have been groomed by someone outside of the home and tricked into meeting them. The photo of the little girl found in the shed could have been something that a perp may have used to trick Asha into thinking she was speaking to another child. The problem with this theory, though, is that Asha did not have access to a computer or internet. It would have been hard to hide a pen pal who was sending letters back and forth in the mail. She just didn't have a lot of outside contact with others. What do you think? I think it's absolutely possible that she could have had a pen pal, but at the same time, a little girl, like, I know if it was me, I would have been excited. I'd be like, hey, mom, check out this letter. My, my new friend in whatever state. Right. I agree. Unless the pen pal said, you know, don't tell your mom and dad. They might not let you talk to me anymore. If, you know? Yeah. That's a possibility. I can see that happening, too. In order to ensure that her parents would never be the ones to check the mail... Because we do know that Asha was home with her brother for a couple hours every day before her mom got home. So she would have been able to possibly check the mail before her mom got home. Easily. Yeah, intercept any letters that came. You know, I guess they could have always mailed something on a Monday, ensure it was delivered by Wednesday, so they wouldn't risk her mother checking the mail on Saturday or something. When yeah, she that's was possible. Possible, but not probable. The whole pen pal thing for me. Right. At the same time, we do have to remember she was home alone with her brother during the day. She was on the basketball team and she did go to church. So those are places where she could have potentially had contact with someone. Some people think maybe she ran away for an adventure or possibly even to get away from something going on inside the home. And then by happenstance, she just met with foul play. But like I said earlier, Harold and Nicola have never been considered suspects. They have no criminal record, and there's no reason to believe there was any type of abuse or mistreatment in the household. I think it was a good family. I don't think she ran away to get away from something bad. Right, I agree. Now, Asha does not fit the profile of a runaway child. In addition to it not seeming like her personality, there are certain markers based on age and race that she did not fit. So the age, ages of 7 to 11 only make up 4% of runaways. Runaways are generally much older. Based on sex, male, female, it's 50-50, so that doesn't mean much. Only 17% of runaways are black. White children actually make up 57% of runaways. She wasn't the perfect fit for a runaway child. I actually ran away. Did you ever run away when you were a Oh, kid? I tried. I got <laughs> as far as the driveway. I was yeah. like, what am I going to do for food? And that, for me, is what makes the runaway thing so crazy. Yeah. Because we lived on 40 acres. There weren't, you know, other people. And I literally ran away to my treehouse. That's as go. far as I got. For what seemed like hours I was gone, it was probably 20 minutes. Yeah. So to actually get up and do it, I just don't see it. One of the theories for the photo is that maybe it came from like a picture frame that, you know, someone in her family had purchased. And Asha just liked it because it looked kind of like her. Okay. And she may have just kept it. And that's not unheard of to me for a little kid to do. Yeah. They keep weird things. Right. But would the parents have recognized it if they had bought the picture frame? I don't know. Not necessarily if she kept it in a room. Right. The last theory is that maybe she possibly sleepwalked. Sleepwalkers tend to do things they're used to doing. They follow their normal routines. So if you get up every day and make yourself eggs and then walk a block to the bus stop, 
it would not be unheard of for someone to do that while they slept. However, Asha did not walk to school every day. Now, the road she was seen walking on was the direction to get to her school, but she rode the bus. So for her to get there and like walk, she wasn't used to walking. That wasn't part of her normal routine. Sleepwalkers normally follow routines. So that's pretty outlandish theory to me. We really don't know. I definitely think foul play for sure, just because her items had been buried. But all these years later, we know nothing. I don't think we're any further on finding out what happened to her. That is so frustrating. I know. And I just feel terrible for her family. And, you know, it was their wedding anniversary. And now it's this horrible day that's just full of sad memories. Not not a happy memory anymore, you know? Right. That's the story of Asha Degree. It's so sad. Paula. Yeah. Do you have anything for a time to kill segment? I do. Bring me up because this case brought me real down. This actually might have potential for that. Oh, good. (laughs) Because you so rarely do. I know. (laughs) Back in 1891, there was something new appearing in the newspapers. It was the first ad for the Ouija board. It said, Ouija, the wonderful talking board. Sold in a toy and novelty store, it was described as a device that answered questions about the past, present, and future. A link between the known and the unknown the material and the immaterial, and it sold for a dollar fifty. Wow! <laughs> I bet one of those originals would be worth quite a penny. Oh, now. I know that'd be amazing. Back then, it was pretty much the same as it is now—a flat board displaying the alphabet, numbers from zero to nine, and the words "yes," "no," and "goodbye." Included in the board was the planchette. Now, I never knew this thing had a name, but it's a planchette, and it's the heart-shaped disc with the window in the center that moves around the board. Two or more people sit around the board, you ask it a question, place your fingers on the planchette, and wait for it to spell out your answer, or move to yes, no, or goodbye if the parents don't feel like communicating. The history dates back to the 19th century obsession with spiritualism, and the belief that the dead could communicate with the living. People held seances and gathered around the table, watching automatic writing, and all claiming they were not the ones shaking the table. It was said that even Mary Lincoln Todd held a seance after her 11-year-old son died of a fever. As spiritualism grew, people grew impatient at how long it was taking to hear back from the spirits, waiting for a knock on the wall when calling out each letter of the alphabet. In 1886, there were reports of phenomenon taking place at a spiritualistic camp in Ohio. Charles Kennard of the Kennard Novelty Company in Baltimore, Maryland, took action. He got a group of four investors. None of them were spiritualists, but they were all savvy businessmen. So they had the board, and now they needed a name. They sat around the board and asked it what it should be called. One of the members' sister-in-law was present, Helen Peters. The name Ouija came through. They asked the board what it meant, and they got the words, good luck. Peter said she was wearing a locket with a picture of a woman and the name Ouija above her head. By 1982, the Canard Novelty Shop went from one factory in Baltimore to two, plus two in Chicago, two in New York, and one in London. In the 1920s, there was a surge in popularity. It was so commonplace that Norman Rockwell painted the board resting on the knees of a man and woman who were communicating with the beyond. The painting appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. During the Great Depression, even more factories were opened, 
In over five months, a department store in New York sold 50,000 boards. Wow. Parker Brothers bought the game in 1966 and a year later sold 2 million boards, outselling Monopoly. Some would-be crime sleuths would use it to help solve crimes, while other people would claim the board made me kill. Marketed as both a mystical oracle and family entertainment, it appeared to people of a wide variety of ages, professions, and beliefs. Robert Merck, who's been researching the Ouija board since 1992, says, quote, It offers people a fun way to believe. They need to believe that something else is out there. This is one of those things that allows them to express that belief. That's so interesting. Yeah, right? Now, have you ever played on a Ouija board? Oh, yeah. Do you still? No, I don't even have one anymore. I had one in high school, and my boyfriend at the time claims that he threw it away, and when he did, black <laughs> spirits arose from the trash. Oh I don't believe that at all. No? <laughs> I think that was an exaggeration. That was him trying to prove his point that it was evil. Okay. I think it is what you believe it is. You right. know, if it's just a fun game, something to do with your friends, then that's all it is. Okay. If you think it's this evil spirit contactor, then that's what it is. Okay. How about you? Okay, so you know I was raised. You don't play with that stuff. Yes. But I was a teenager who did things I wasn't always supposed to do. My best friend's birthday is right after Halloween. We were all together, and it was me and her and another girl, and then mine and her boyfriend. So there's five of us. And we decided to go to this graveyard, this small little country graveyard. Cool. At midnight on Halloween. Ooh. And do the Ouija board. Okay. Because that's what teenagers do, right? That's what I would do, but. And of course, you know, our boyfriends freaked us out. Of course. Trying to scare the girls. So. Yes, I have played with the Ouija board. That was the one time. Now as an adult, I believe. No way. I think they're doorways. But see, that's what I believe. So for me, it might be a a doorway. I don't know. I just don't play with like spiritual stuff. Right. I've seen the movies. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't play with one now. The one time I did, it was kind of fun. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds cool. I would like to do that now. Now, do you think they work, though? Do you think you're really talking to the dead or a spirit? I don't know. I mean, the times that I have used it, it was me and other kids. And later on, one of my friends admitted that they were pushing the planchette around the board. I mean, I even had a seance at one of my summer parties. I think I was like 13. I had maybe like three other girls spend the night. Uh-huh. And after my parents went to bed, we all sat around the table <laughs> and did like the automatic writing. Oh. And at the time, my friend was like, I'm not doing it. The spirit is just moving my hand. And a couple days later, she was like, no, I was totally doing it. Of course. So, you know. Here's okay. the way I look at it. Somebody's either moving it, which is like the fun jovial. It's just a fun game. Right. It's a game. Or it's moving on its own, in which case... You really are talking to something, and that's where it gets scary to me. So I think most of the time, I'm sure it's probably just some kid moving it around. Yeah. Like our boyfriends were to us, scaring us, you know. If it's really working, to me, that's when it's scary. Well, of course. (laughs) So that was cool. That's cool information. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to check out our website for pictures and links corresponding to each episode at dollsanddoom.com. Follow us on social media. Leave a comment. And stay alive so you don't end up on the wrong side of the grass. Bye! Bye.